Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. Our Bigelow website is BigelowLLC.com, where we freely share immediately useful information with high-performing entrepreneur owner-managers who want to build their enterprise value and possibly create a, pos- a capital gain someday. For over 30 years, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of entrepreneur owner-managers and working with hundreds. I've seen that successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves clues. Deconstructing the behavior of high-performing EOMs lets all of us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience in the entrepreneur domain. So, in this series of podcasts, I interview seasoned successful entrepreneur owner-managers who are high performers. I think it would be safe to say they're peak performers in their niche domains in both the for-profit and not-for-profit areas. What I'm looking for to share with you is patterns of connectedness across those domains. Today, I'm very psyched to share with you a private and very personal one-on-one interview with my friend, uh, Max Bricklin. Max is the founding principal at Bold Capital Partners, a uh, sort of young emerging venture firm in Los Angeles, which was uh, founded uh, by uh, my friend Peter Diamandis and uh, Tamor Butrusgali. Uh, in full disclosure, I'm a, a partner in uh, Bold Capital Partners 1 and 2. Max really, I think, was some of the founding uh, conversation <laughs> with Peter Diamandis about really the ecosystem in Southern California that uh, was coming to Peter and Max looking for funding in the areas of exponential technologies. So Max has uh, been with Bold Capital Partners since their, uh, or even before their very first day, and he has a fabulous perspective on how Bold is looking for investments in the emerging technology area, and more than emerging, the convergence of technology area. And I would say of all of the investors that I have ever met, uh, Max and Bold have a very uh, unique uh, point of view on it. So we, we talk about the founding of the firm. We talk about some of the strategy of the firm. We talk about the uh, challenge of balancing uh, building a firm like this and uh, building its uh, resources, as well as uh, guiding its uh, portfolio companies, along with uh, being a young entrepreneur with a young family like Max has. Our uh, recording was done uh, in mid-July in Bold Capital Partners uh, headquarters in Santa Monica, California. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Max, thank you so much for being on Positive Enterprise Value with me today. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So as we get started, I uh, know that a lot of the entrepreneur owner managers listening to the podcast will know of you and know of Bold Capital Partners and probably have a view of uh, venture capital and early stage and Bold and maybe even you. So let me ask you if you, I'm giving you the opportunity to say, here's a couple of nouns, Pete to say, like, professionally, this is what I do. What would you say it is? That's a really great question. Thinking about it that way, I'm generally in the position of having to explain what venture capital is, even even to people in the quote-unquote industry. Um, really, it's a very um, unintentionally secretive industry, which... I don't believe is the um, is the best thing for the industry, but it makes sense once you've been in it for you know five, ten years. It, you understand why uh, it's all about asymmetrical information and asymmetrical information. That is the key to success in venture capital. It's getting information ahead of time um, that others in the industry don't have, and it's getting information that others don't have access to, and so. Uh, I'll go back and answer your question in a second, but um, the number one thesis that I have in venture capital I've had since college, I did a whole thesis around this, is the the success in venture capital is directly correlated to the network that your venture fund is involved with. So we started Bold Capital in partnership with Singularity University and Peter Diamandis because of the global network that was already established that we could tap into and then... Uh, essentially activate for our purposes. And and that's not just 
getting interesting deal flow, but it's the asymmetrical information of the corporations involved, the experts that are at the cutting edge of technology. And our job is to gather as much of that as possible, synthesize it, and act on it. And if you think about venture capital that way, I would say we are a detective of sorts. Um, I would say we are um, very much, and I, and I hate to use this word because that's not how it's supposed to be, but you know, a professional networker is the number one relationship builder. Relationship builder is yeah. a is a nicer way to put it. Um, but our goal is to go out and make genuine connections for multiple reasons, but it's all the people you're making connections with are actually making connections with you for the same purpose. So it doesn't feel like you're in a sales meeting. It feels like what I, the way that I consider venture capital is a matchmaking process. So, so um, relationship builder, um, matchmaker, um, asymmetrical information, but specifically thinking about you, Max, what would be some nouns that would describe what you do? If you were going to describe it to your 10-year-old nephew, what are a couple of words that you would use? I would use the words... Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, psychiatrist is one of the, yeah. the words. Therapist. A therapist yeah. is, is definitely a, a big point. Uh, listener. Listener. Um, there's probably a more elegant word for this, but uh, dot connector, helping yes. connect the dots. Yes, uh, definitely connecting patterns. Pattern, pattern recognizer. Because you're in, a, I think, a very enviable situation where you probably get to see different domains and early stages in different domains, which I suspect for the entrepreneurs that you're dealing with, they are looking very vertically at that domain, and you luckily have the, the fun of seeing it at 10,000 feet or sometimes maybe even 40,000 feet and be able to connect those patterns? That's half of it. So if it's, the venture capitalist has two jobs. It's finding great investments, and after you've made those investments, helping those investments succeed. So pattern recognition is both understanding where those investments are coming from and what makes them a great investment, and second, once you've made the investment, helping connect those dots for the entrepreneur who is very much focused in a particular area, and you're either helping connect the dots within that area because they're looking for um, new partnerships. Basically, venture cap uh, companies need two things. They need revenue. They need money and money. Revenue and capital to continue to grow. And so you're helping connect the dots on what partnerships um, could be interesting distribution channels to create new customers or new customers or how trends are changing in the industry to give feedback for them to position themselves differently or watching the funding ecosystem and helping connect the dots on where they may or may not want to be spending their time for the next rounds of funding and helping make those connections. Yeah, I really like the way you put that. So the pattern connector two levels. One is identifying and um, putting together um, the ability to put capital into these young uh, organizations. But secondly, connecting the patterns after the fact to be able to perhaps help those entrepreneurs who haven't been through this before with what others have done before them. Yeah. Well, I actually, I will change that slightly because our thesis is to invest in the best entrepreneurs, which generally means they have done this before. And to your point, to succeed, you have to be ruthlessly focused on a particular objective. And that sometimes takes away your ability to look at what else is happening in other parts of the world, um, either your industry or other industries that may be affecting that. And so our job is to, is to help people who have done this before navigate what we call the convergence of technologies or trends. But that's the, the main part of our thesis is the fact that there is a convergence of technologies that are creating opportunities. Right. And we want to invest in people that have navigated the entrepreneurial journey 
a number of times before because we believe that this is a time unlike any other in history where worlds are colliding, technologies are converging, trends are coming together faster than ever, and we are helping keep those entrepreneurs just a few steps ahead of the game so that they can prepare for when that happens. And the classic example is to disrupt or be disrupted. And generally, we are in the position of disrupting, but innovation is moving so quickly that it's very easy for, for companies to get even small, young companies to be disrupted yes. if they're not constantly looking ahead of time. So it's yeah. that sort of pattern recognition um, to keep them ahead of the game. So interestingly, you mentioned um, you uh, even did some work uh, thinking about this when you were in college. So here you are as a uh, an investor in young uh, venture stage businesses. Is that what you thought you were going to do when you grew up? Yes. Um, in high school, I thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. I had the pleasure of actually going through a, a few entrepreneurial activities is what I'll call them. I wouldn't call them um, formal startups, although there was a bit of capital raised, so I went through a little bit of that process, but realized that that's not what I wanted to be. I wanted to be somebody that could, basically to answer your question, uh, be a therapist, be a pattern recognizer for uh, Oh, theoretically hundreds of entrepreneurs over right. my lifetime. Right. I didn't know that was called venture capital. Yeah, yeah. I got extremely lucky. Um, my first year of college, I got to meet an incredible venture capitalist mentor who took me under his wing um, with the fact that he knew that that's what I wanted to be, but I didn't know that that's what that was. So it was very much another part of the venture capital industry is, is serendipity. Yes. Uh, you're really good in venture capital if you can manufacture serendipity. So that was not in any way manufactured. Well, sometimes you can do that through relationships, right? Well, that's the whole point. That's yeah. how that's how it works. And being able to under the under having a an overview of a network, understanding the patterns within that network, and then manufacturing the serendipity. Right. Um, it, it's it's an orthogonal problem. But you, um, once you understand what you're looking for and what you need to do, it starts to starts to make a lot more sense. So I wonder if that was uh, sort of built into you, or was that? I mean, were your parents entrepreneurs? Were you, were you a student as a young kid? Were you a good student of entrepreneurship? Very much so. Um, well, I think two things. One, my dad is the classic entrepreneur. Uh, has had very high highs, very low lows, and has been at the cutting edge of a lot of unique technology, all within a particular industry. He's been in transportation his whole life, um, and I've had the pleasure of watching him uh, not only th go through entrepreneurial activities, but also be somebody who's had to evaluate new technologies and new trends coming in from the entrepreneurial perspective, right. not from the first principles science perspective, right, which right. is what you really have to be as a venture capitalist. And so as an entrepreneur, I got to, uh, well, as my dad being an entrepreneur, I got to see what he was doing, which in, inspired me a bit to be entre, quote unquote entrepreneurial as a kid, yeah. but it's, it's also you're born with it or you're not. Yeah. So, you know, when I was six years old, I had my first business, and I, I remember it was called Max's Summertime's Jobs. I didn't know what the TM meant, but I knew you had to trademark everything. <laughs> my mom still has the, the flyers that I actually made a couple thousand dollars over you know, two summers of doing that. I then realized I should invest that into um, beach equipment. I live by the beach. Beach equipment to then rent out to tourists, then creating a comic book company, then creating uh, a mobile memorabilia um, museum that I would take around. So I've been very entrepreneurial my whole life. It's in me, but not something that I felt I could I could harness into just one company for a period of time that you would need to succeed. That's why I wanted to, to go to venture capital so I could use this energy to help theoretically hundreds of people over time. So um, did you go directly from high school to college? Yes. And um, when you graduated from college, uh, what was your first job? In venture capital. My first job um, in college was working for this venture capitalist. Then I started another little company on the side just to make sure I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> Did that for six months and then had the opportunity to work for that VC again. This was a 
25-year managing partner of a venture firm who left to start his own family office, so it was me and him directly for two years. Right. Then I got to work for a number of his startups, all while in college. Then when I graduated, I helped a um, smaller LA-based venture fund go from um, 10 million to 20 million, helped make about 20 investments with him. And at that point, I didn't really connect with the thesis. Um, it was a business-to-business focused yep. venture fund. Yep. I had met Peter in high school, Peter Diamandis in high school, while I was doing one of the startups that I mentioned. And so we actually had connected for six months and I knew of him, uh, was inspired by him. We both definitely meshed. Um, and long story short, I did that. I did the venture capital fund in LA for about a year and realized what I really wanted to do was, because um, I had spent so much time on my thesis of the network, uh, effect of in the venture capital world, saw Singularity University becoming um, what it is today, a, a very successful global network. Peter was um, had already been very successful and was continuing his success and moved over and said, uh, Peter, I think we should start a venture fund around you and Singularity University. So about nine months out of college is when we uh, decided to get Bold Capital started. Took about a year and a half to two years to put the pieces together and actually get it going. So what would that have been, thinking about what year it is today, would that have been 2016 or 17? 2000, and I graduated college 2013. Yeah. Um, had the first meeting with Peter two days before Thanksgiving on in 2013. By 20, early 2015, I think it was April 2015, we got our anchor investor for Bold, closed it 2016, and uh, now we're on our second fund. So technically final close of everything 2016. And if you could describe bold capital partners and uh, uh, you know your th- paragraph of your thesis very specifically what would it be? So just the basic information is bold capital is a 125 million dollar early stage venture capital fund. Our sweet spot is 2 to 4 million dollars into a series A. Our thesis is to invest in companies that utilize exponential technology to solve global important problems. And while that's very broad, that breaks down into a number of technologies and industries. Some of the technologies include AI, robotics, 3D printing, synthetic biology, network sensors. Um, the list goes on from there. And the industries focus on about 50% of the portfolios in healthcare, which is broadly defined. There's a, a lot going on in healthcare, so I'm sure you've heard a lot about that. Um, moving into some of the other areas, we've got this general area of what we call productivity. And that includes things like manufacturing 4.0, the future of work, um, AR, VR fits into that because that's things like new ways of training and education. So it's this broad bucket that we define as productivity. Um, moving into a couple other industries, we have small investments in things like communication, transportation, security, ag tech, um, construction slash real estate. So we're very, very broadly defined. The the couple specific attributes of all the companies we invest in are a few things. Extremely talented and impressive entrepreneurs. That's first and foremost. A total aside that we could talk about at another time is um, I believe that the most successful entrepreneurs in our portfolio and some of the most successful entrepreneurs in technology-backed uh, you know, startups and the, the general venture capital industry are people that have turned their success into significance. And what that means is they have been extremely successful in other startups that may have been in quote-unquote traditional industries. Maybe they spent 10 years um, building a new cloud computing platform. And that, you can make an argument has helped a lot of people in the world. They made a lot of money, built an incredible network, has the 10 to 20 years of entrepreneurial track record, and realized that there is a set of unique trends happening, one of which is the exponential availability of new technologies, that they now have the opportunity to go actually try and solve a global important problem, which affects potentially hundreds of millions or billions of people. And so a great example is one of the, the companies in our portfolio is a guy named Naveen Jain. Very successful entrepreneur in the past. He has three or four very major exits under his belt. He's the kind of guy that 
you meet him for five minutes and he's, he sold you. I'm sure you've had the pleasure of yes, meeting Naveen. he's terrific. Very terrific. And he was looking for what was next because he's been inspired by this ecosystem, the Peter, the Amanda Singularity University ecosystem, saying, I want to now go have a global impact. Right. So he's created a new company called Viome, which is not to get too much into it, but it's essentially sequencing your microbiome at the, at the highest levels possible to essentially give you direction on, on what you should eat at the smallest level, at the highest level, believing that he can cure almost all the diseases in the world based on your nutrition. And his thesis is, I am now going to use this really amazing sequencing technology to create a company that has the ability to impact a billion people. And not many entrepreneurs could A, get that technology license from where he licensed it from, attract the type of team that he was able to attract, have even that grand vision of being able to impact that world if he didn't have 20 or 30 years of incredible experience, the network that he's built, the foresight that he has, I think actually to steal a term from you, the scar tissue that he's accumulated yes. over the years. Yep. And so I could go on and on about why I think the number one attribute of the success of our portfolio companies is the entrepreneur. So you'd never, uh, is it true that you would never, if you saw a terrific technology and a terrific business and a terrific application and you weren't high on the entrepreneur, that would be something you would never invest in? Zero percent chance. Okay. And so, Max, you, you exude uh, intelligence and positive energy and you have, in my experience, an unusual combination of head and heart. But... I suspect you also can be, um, I mean this in the best possible way, but somewhat demanding in terms of the people that you work with. You have high standards. Is that true? How would, how would, people, how would entrepreneurs find you to work with specifically, personally? That's a great question to reflect on. And I would say that to be, to be really honest, I would say that this is a... a a bit of a, I don't want to use the word problem exactly, but something that I've been working through over the last six years, as I'm still pretty young, as I just mentioned to you, the people that we're working with are multiple, you know, decades of experience. And so there are certain positions where I can be demanding with my entrepreneurs, but a lot of the time I see myself as someone there to There's a difference between me and my managing partner. My managing partner, Timur Butraskali, has been investing for longer than I've been alive. Right. So when he has an opinion on how you should do particular uh, fundraising strategy or you know change of business model, it's coming from decades of experience. I, I like to think that I, I can provide that sort of advice to entrepreneurs. But that's not what I feel my job is in the organization. Because theoretically, these entrepreneurs actually take what you have to say to heart and go and do it. And if I don't have the data to prove it, maybe I've got a year or two or three years worth of data in a particular piece of advice that I'm going to give, and I feel really strongly about it, I will do that. But I don't feel that's what my job is. Going back to where I think my skills are is networking, partnership building, value add from the two things that I think are the most important to that caliber of entrepreneur, which is money and money, which is how do I get more revenue? How do I get more co-investment into my next rounds? And those are two things that I, A, really like to do. I love to have that sort of network to add to the, the entrepreneur. Um, and I feel I'm a very good sounding board not to give advice back to them, but to be able to help connect the dots on a higher level, not from an advice perspective, hey, what you just told me, I think you should go do X, Y, and Z thing, but oh, by the way, let me input some of the asymmetrical information that I have that you might not have into your ultimate analysis. If it helps, that's fantastic, I've done my job. If not, it's something for you at least to, to think about. So, and, so um, in what ways, Max, do you think that if you have a seasoned, experienced, previously successful entrepreneur, in what ways might you be challenging to work with personally or, or a little tricky for them to work with? The beauty of a venture capital firm is it's a partnership. And every partnership 
has individuals that are really good at particular things, has particular skills. And I would say the fact that, you know, you look at me and you talk to me, you realize, okay, I have kids that are older than you. And so why would I (laughs) take your advice? Um, So that would be the challenging aspect is just my, my age, but I make up for it, I believe, with the ability to be self-aware to understand that they don't want my advice on particular things and I'm not going to try and give it to them because yeah. I don't think it's, that's not why I'm investing in you. You've got all of that covered. And if you do need help, I've got four incredible partners for you who have been doing it as long as you and can really use that um, the other assets in our in our firm. So I would say I try and go out of my way to not be challenging to work with because I'm self-aware enough to understand what I can't provide to you and I will not try and waste your time trying to provide it to you. Again, going back to network pattern, you know, matching recognition, um, I will figure out the right assets to put in front of you for what I think you need help with. So that's a great, uh, that's a great uh, analysis. If you think about, um, I suspect because you're a planner and you're a thinker, you probably have in your mind, you may even have on paper knowing you, uh, sort of an arc of what you're hoping your professional life will be. Where are you on that arc and where are you trying to get to as a destination? That's funny that you mentioned that. I just had this... Uh, let me step back for a second. I couldn't be happier with where I'm at in life. My goal in college was to have a venture fund that I was part of establishing either being the only GP or being part of a GP. I I didn't have that figured out, but I wanted to have a fund that I felt ownership in and had ownership in. Okay, check. Check. But my goal was like by 40 to have that. So getting out of college to get that this early was so encouraging. What what I do want to, what I have not struggled with, but something that I've thought about and how that's changed my plan was what my day-to-day life looks like, what what I'm learning, just thinking through all of the um, all of the assets that are gonna. So, what does my life look like at 40 now? What does 60 look like, right? Yeah, what does my yeah. my career look like when yeah. I've done something 15 years earlier than so I thought I was going to? I know for you, it's not a job. It's not even a career. Right. It may be what I call a calling. Yeah. And so that's what I'm asking is like, kind of where are you on that curve and where are you trying to get to? So, and I just had this conversation with, with Timor, our managing partner, and I'm, I'm so lucky to have the mentorship that I have from my partners because I feel so lucky that they are invested in my success over my career. And what I want, just really specifically, what I want to do from today to that by the time I retire is grow bold into a multi-billion dollar asset managing firm and it's not I, I believe not just venture early stage venture capital that moves to growth stage capital I really have this I think exciting concept of something called venture equity so we can get into that another time but growing bold into um, a huge technology focused investment platform and what that means is a few things so so where I'm at is being part of a venture fund is what I'd always want to do. Now that I'm there, how do I grow that into one of the top venture capital funds with a mission, which is I want to look back at the end of my career and say, wow, my companies have helped this many people with these healthcare related issues and solved traffic in this particular, and, and look and see the problems that my entrepreneurs have gone and solved and the jobs they've created and all the other wonderful things that come with venture capital. So from a mission-driven perspective, I don't care what bold capital looks like to make that happen, but I want to look back and see that the hundreds of entrepreneurs I've invested in have actually made a tangible difference. So that's one part. I I can tell, and uh, the listeners to Positive Enterprise Value can tell, because those are super successful entrepreneurs, they can tell you're passionate about this. But I know that you're also passionate about your family, and uh, you have a, a young daughter. Um, do you think that uh, there is a trade-off to be made between personal and family um, fulfillment and professional fulfillment? It depends on what industry you're in. And part of the reason why I didn't want to be an entrepreneur is because I feel that's a, and all the entrepreneurs listening have probably gone through this a number of times in their life. 
realize that that's a trade-off you have to make as an entrepreneur. And that's why they say, oh, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you just started a new company, how's your baby? It's, it is the same thing as having, I have a three-month-old now. It is probably harder to have a startup than to have a baby, in my opinion. <laughs> Or even just a, a company going through any sort of growth phase, even small growth. And so, yeah, I believe there, unfortunately, as an entrepreneur, has to be a trade-off of some sort between family and entrepreneurialism. But it's just like going back to a comment I made earlier, entrepreneurialism is a part of you. It's a part of your DNA, just like being a family person is being, you know, family man is being, or, or woman is part of your DNA. It's something that drives you and that you truly love and makes you happy. So I don't look at it exactly as a trade-off. I look at it as there's only so much time in the day, 156 hours per week, and you have to optimize that. And part of that is understanding how much time you spend with all of the things in your life that make you happy and make you a family man or woman. In my case, family is really, really important to me. And so I try and optimize for more of that in my life than I would as an entrepreneur who can only optimize for a certain amount. So that was a strategic reason I didn't want to be an entrepreneur because I knew that I, I would um, have to make that decision at some point in my life, which I, I, didn't, I didn't want to do. I got it. You know, uh, so many people talk, I think, with, well, with good intentions about work-life balance. Uh, and you can go back to uh, some of my writing that I think one of them is titled uh, Work-Life Balance Schmalance. Yeah. Uh, what I believe in is work-life integration yeah because uh, for entrepreneurs like us business owners like us you know there, there really isn't nine to five there really isn't monday through friday it's all just living yeah and so trying to integrate it so that you have like this fun interesting learning rewarding life is uh, seems to be for me at least integration is easier than trying to balance like a seesaw i appreciate that perspective and i would say that just to challenge that. That's easier said for the types of businesses that we're owners of because the nature of the business is, is different. But when you are an entrepreneur focused on delivering products, you, we don't have, they don't have that luxury. So it's hard. It, it, I actually think I've seen pitfalls of entrepreneurs try and create that work-life integration and it actually has backfired on them ah. because, yes, it is. It is more than nine to five. It's twenty four seven as any entrepreneur, but the type of business that you're running demands particular things from you at yeah. particular times. Yeah. When our line of work, you know, is it's more flexible, is more flexible, yeah. Yeah. and that allows you to have more say over that integration when. Uh, a lot of other businesses are not that way. And so when you try and integrate it, you actually lose the opportunity to set the clear boundaries. And in fact, actually, the other non-flex, not as flexible opportunities create very specific walls between the work and life balance that you gotta take advantage of, right? So I worked, I went on vacation during the fourth, but I worked through it. I had a deal that I really wanted to get done. It was really competitive. No problem, because that's just part of how my lifestyle is. Some of our, my entrepreneurs, I talked to them Wednesday night before the 4th and 5th where they were going to take off. I said, turn off your email. Please don't talk to anybody. They said, that's the only way I survive. I, yeah. I have to take that time off. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. I hear you, yeah. but I've, you make seen, a very good point. I've seen there be yeah. challenges to trying fully integrating that because you never really get that time off and you get burned out quickly. So you have this unusual um, seat to view these different entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs in these different domains. And you also have a three-month-old daughter. What are you looking forward to teaching your child about the world of work? The world of work, that's a great question. Um, I was just having this conversation with my wife the other day. And I bet you were. <laughs> never too early to start planning right, for this stuff. Right. I, I think that the world of work today versus when my daughter goes into the workforce is gonna look dramatically different from education, higher level education, you know this very well, being involved in, in higher education and the way that that's changing and how that ultimately leads to your path of work. And 
So, and so if you gave us a couple of bullet points of yeah. what things that would be different when she enters the world of work, what are some high points that come to mind for you? Well, automation, of course. Everyone talks about AI, but the AI plus human relationship, I think, in 20 years, 23 years, yeah. whatever it's going to be, is we're not, we can't even fathom that today. It's going to be, and, I, and I've had conversations with Tony Robbins over this, it's about finding your passion so that when AI really starts to take all the quote unquote boring stuff out yeah. of the equation, yeah. you're focusing on the things that you're passionate about, that you're good at, and, I, and, and navigating life. There's the classic example of education. Why are, why are we learning about um, economics in high school when we should be teaching our kids how to do simple things like tax, you know, doing their taxes and budgeting in certain things that are life skills versus these academic skills when you can go and do that in higher education. And I think more skills geared for how children need to navigate life because there's so many more complicated elements of life now than there were 10 years ago and that there's going to be 20 years from now. So I think the education to make people more aware of how to take control of their lives when more automation happens. When I don't think my my daughter is going to get a driver's license at 16 because I hope that there's going to be autonomous cars taking them everywhere. I say I hope because we're invested in a number of areas in that space and I hope it's not longer than 16 years. <laughs> but just thinking about their daily life. They're going to wake up. They're going to have an AI agent that's going to be getting them through all the things that yeah, so I wake up today, I wake up early, I take my dog out, I feed her. That will all be done autonomously when I'm, when she's, if we, if we were to put her, my daughter in my shoes, that will all be taken care of, right? So that gives her a little bit more free time, right? I drive, you know, 30 minutes into work, that will all be done autonomously. That's 30 more minutes of, of time. The fact that we're going to have AR glasses and we can, I spoke to somebody on my way into work today via phone and the, con the connection wasn't great. There's only so much you can accomplish over, over a phone call. Now I'm fully immersed. Maybe I've got my VR headset. So I've now unlocked so much more time. I've created so much more productivity. And I am now working in an environment that's not just my office. So it really will be 24-7 work. And going back to understanding boundaries at that point, we're going to really have to figure that out. Yeah. But there's going to be so much more time available, so much more productivity accomplished using new technology tools. And then you add this automation layer on top of that to compound everything that I just said, getting rid of all the, the emails. I'm not going to go on and start my day with 45 minutes of emails to catch up. They will basically be done for me and it will be a summary of everything that I'm going to email and I just click yes to make sure it's what I would have said. Yeah. We're already getting there when you look at Gmail, it says it auto responses to you. Yeah, right. We're getting there. Right. So just imagine the 50% of our work, which is that can be automated, is going to be automated. That gives us 50% more time. And are we then going to have to learn how to do the things that we're really good at with 50% more Availability in the day? Are we going to have to? Um, are we going to have shorter working days? So just the future of work is one element, and that is going to dramatically change what jobs are available and how much money people are going to make based on that, right? Why would I pay somebody? Would I pay somebody fifty percent less because they're doing fifty percent less work? So those are the questions that I think a three-month-old should be asking themselves when they're, uh, you know, twenty-two. Uh, what's going to happen twenty-two years from now? A lot of it is just the way that we work. Then what ty types of jobs are going to be available? It's the, in my opinion, I, my wife was saying, you know, what do you want Violet to be when you're older, when she's older? And I said, whatever makes her happy is the first thing. But what I think would be a job that would be a really smart thing for her to get into would be data science. Because I think that everything that I just mentioned to you is now what used to be manually created data that lived in this manual world now moving to every everything that i just mentioned has data coming off of it and really being able to own your life in a world of machines is being able to is to be able to speak the language of the machines which is in my opinion data science and understanding which pieces of data are important and all the 90 percent of the data that's unimportant and not getting caught up in that right that's exactly right and that's that's 
a lot easier said than done, and it's right. going to only get more complicated. So I would encourage her to get into computer science, not because I think it's a lucrative job, but because I think that's going to be the language of the future. And if you don't have that, it's going to be, in my opinion, going to be almost not like being able to speak a natural language. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I hope she's going to get into. And it's incredible to be able to program and create applications and products by tapping the keystrokes of a computer. It's just a magical experience that's only going to become more magical and more necessary in life. As you describe all this, we don't have to get into this, but I just want to put an editorial stake in the ground. As you describe all this and describe that she's three months old and what the future could be, I do see a huge adversity or challenge for us as a culture to overcome, which is, you know, our K through 12 school system is an agrarian calendar, nine months a year school system that basically teaches people how to be very obedient little people so mm. that they become good factory workers, right? Yep. It isn't teaching like independent thought, critical thinking, the kinds of things you're, you're talking about. So that's going to be, and that's in the public sector. And yep. we both know how, how fast the public sector changes, right. like slow. Yep. So that, that's going to be an interesting piece of adversity for us, I think, as a culture to overcome, don't you? I think the conversation has already been there for a long time. And I've given small an example of why are we not teaching our kids how to you know, do our taxes. Yeah. And I think there's a s systemic reason for all of this that is going to be liberated by technology. And then it will not force the conversation. It will force action. And, uh, you know, the little I'm not very political and I'm that's my stance. I I actually wanted to when I was younger be uh, ironically one of my, you know, 11-year-old goals was to be the governor of California to change the education system because I have been passionate about edu education for a long time. And I met some of the senators, and I, and I thought through that process a little bit and realized there is no way I can change um, anything through politics. It's got to be through the private sector. It's got to be through, yeah. through technology, through students taking ownership of their own education and forcing change to happen, even if it's not in the the eight to three um, school system, because I don't think that should change. That really helps parents going to work. Uh, if you're a not working parent, it gives you some time away from kids. There's, there's reasons why the system should say in a similar way to it, but I think it's gonna totally flip the script where it's gonna be, um, I'm blanking on the name of this type of education, but it's essentially go home, do all of the lecturing at home. Yeah, they call that the flipped classroom. The flipped classroom, yes. exactly, yeah. and make school time being uh, be about really learning how to teach our kids empathy yeah. how to work together coaching coaching yeah. coaching that's a great way to put it so and I think that is going to be hard for a lot of people to realize but if you look at the problems and my, my wife is a teacher one of the great I, I did have a plan for the type of person I want to marry and it did include a teacher so I got <laughs> lucky about that because I am passionate about education and I like to see it on the you know the forefront and she, um, she's a deaf and hard of hearing teacher, which is a very different type of teacher, but she interacts with all the, the teachers out there. And just the, the balance of the types of te teacher is a thankless, in my opinion, very, very, very difficult job for a lot of reasons. And it's an underserved um, set. Uh, there's not enough teachers to meet the demand. We look at LA USC strikes that just happened last semester. There's a lot of problems in teaching that I think can be solved if we start to create this flip model and infuse a new set of amazing people into the teaching profession and go from teachers to coaches. I love that, that term. Max, um, a lot of people listening to this episode probably see you as a guy who's had lots of successes, and, um, and I do too. But uh, I also sort of believe that you know successes are interesting but you don't change much through successes because successes in a way give you feedback to keep on doing what you're doing. Yeah. What really gets you to change as an individual, as a person, to grow are failures. Uh, at least they have been for me. And now That's you have to be point. willing to change your behavior yeah. <laughs> during yeah. those failures. You can't repeat the failure. But um, if you can you think back on um, some uh, adversity or some disappointments or maybe even what you'd call a life failure that comes to mind that uh, helped inform who you are today? So the 
good and bad. The double-edged sword of venture capital is that the, by definition, the majority of investments are failures. And so just from a professional perspective, having been involved in, at this point, I don't know, 75 to 100 companies where either I was directly making the investment decision or part of the investment decision, a lot of those have been failures. And that has helped me grow and refine my skills in my career. So from that perspective, I've luckily had a feedback loop over the last eight years of a lot of failures to understand how to do things better. I think um, very famous VC, John Dewar, uh, said you have to, uh, great VC has to crash, has to lose enough money that's the equivalent of crashing an F-18 fighter pilot plane, <laughs> uh, fighter jet. And, you know, that's hundreds of millions of dollars. And I don't think I'm quite there yet, but that's just the way that a VC has to think about failure, as entrepreneurs should. But you're talking about 500 shots on goal versus five shots on goal as an entrepreneur, right? Right. So you want, you want that majority to be flipped. You want the majority of those five to be success, not failure. But one or two is good to keep you going. VC, it's probably going to be, you know, if you get 100 out of 500, right, you're doing really well. Um, so that's how I think about it professionally. And, and, so, and so you're saying that, therefore, your, your unique profession actually is quite informative as to failure because there's a lot of them. Yeah, it's inevitable. Just statistically, it's inevitable. Yeah, and the only way that you become good at investing is by failing enough to realize what doesn't work. If your first five are successful, you're probably not going to be informed for the next 50 because you. we actually had a, an intern in here yesterday watching a, a pitch, and yeah. he was sitting in the corner, first time he's ever been in an investment pitch, and it was, it's an incredible company, incredible entrepreneur, I think we're very much going to invest in the company. They, it was a, supposed to be an hour. It ended up being two hours. Everyone was engaged, excited. Kumbaya, really great investment potential. And we talk about it right afterward. We say, oh, you know, pending these three diligence items, I'm pretty sure we're going to invest for X, Y, Z reasons. Not going too much into it. We talked to the intern afterward and say, oh, so what do you think? He said, this was the worst pitch for me, the worst <laughs> meeting for me to be in because it seemed too easy. I don't think this is how it's supposed to be. So that's very much not indicative of, of the yeah. process. Yeah. So, so you have this unique uh, profession that you're in where you get informed by lots of failures. Statistically, I don't know what it is, but it's a high percentage. How does that inform you personally? Well, you got to have thick skin because it's hard for these entrepreneurs who've become your friends to, it's hard to see them fail. But you don't have thick skin. You're right. I don't. Um, and it's a bit of a challenge. Uh, at least the last couple of years have been a challenge dealing with that, where it's, <laughs> I've got a body of scar tissue now growing, not just in a couple <laughs> areas. Right. So my, thin is get, my, my skin is getting a lot thicker. And so just from an emotional perspective, I'm a very emotional person. I, I, I actually think if you were to compare my EQ versus IQ, it's no comparison EQ by a long shot. I like to think it would be more IQ, but it's not, and I'm okay with that. Um, and so it's, it's actually something funny that, again, my managing partner said, it's very interesting that I chose to become a venture capitalist. So are you working on that? Yeah, oh yeah every day. Are you working on, um, in your, your words, because having thicker skin? Yes, I have to. And, and that starts with the first time I meet an entrepreneur and not getting too excited into the vision and not having what we call happy years. And it's hard. And I don't think I'm ever going to, I always want to be extremely optimistic. Um, I've been always, I've always been taught to be optimistic first and then figure out the reasons why you shouldn't do something. And that's not all of nine out of 10 venture capitalists are very pessimistic first. But there are a few VCs out there that are optimistic first, and they figure out the problems with it before making an investment, or they're able to understand the vision, and this entrepreneur has the ability to overcome a lot of those problems. Um, and so I, 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 it's something I struggle with all the time, figuring out how to dial in and, and uh, my optimism or not. Well, I'll tell you a secret. Me too. <laughs> Good. So it never goes away. So do you have a sense, professionally and personally, what your unique potential is? My unique potential as unique ability. My ability, yeah. It's very much the emotional intelligence side of things and the ability to genuinely care about 
other people, their success, and how I can be part of that success, and ultimately how they can help me succeed. But the emotional intelligence is so important in business. We were just talking before this podcast how you've never seen an entrepreneur sell a business, get an investment for their business if they didn't like the person. Right. And I actually have thought about this and figured out why I have this sort of EQ and because I want to teach this to my daughter because I think that's a skill that is not just a skill that can make you successful, but it's that just makes you happy in life. And um, I had a unique childhood. I had I lived in California. My dad lived in New York. Uh, he's very um, he's a very emotionally intelligent guy. He's one of the most charismatic charismatic guys you'd ever meet. Uh, he would put me into meetings when I was a little kid. I would be rolling around in the conference room floor when I was six, but listening and absorbing and understanding just how people interact with each other. I've been on more planes than most entrepreneurs, you know, three times my age or international entrepreneurs. Right. And genuinely sitting in a box for six hours to New York talking to a person is is part is six hours toward the 10,000 hour rules of mastery. Right. And I think my mastery is really genuinely having a conversation, acknowledging who that person is, acknowledging what they what kind of wants they have, wants they don't have what makes them tick not from a, a manipulative perspective but just a pattern recognition where I've talked to so many people in my life I was always forced out of my bubble I was a um, international water polo player so just the amount of time I've spent with people talking to people listening to people having conversations on buses in between games on flights at schools as an you know as the entrepreneurial enterprising kid that I was for, you know, decades, uh, my two and a half decades of life. Um, and I think that true ability to connect with people is my number one skill. And, and I would say pattern recognition is the other. Um, but it really, I, I've had multiple bosses tell me that there are people way smarter than you I could have chose to be, to do this job, better financial modeler, better X, Y, Z, but I genuinely like being around you and that's what makes success. And I chose you over this because just the ability to, that I like you. And that's, I just had this conversation with my, with my current boss that, that, um, which is Timor, our managing partner, that, that is a double-edged sword for me. I, I, I actually wish in my job, being like, liked is one thing, but you also really have to be honed in on these other skills. Um, so part of my continued growth and my unique ability is getting better at things that I'm not as good at, and that's challenging. Well, I think that's a really incredible uh, depth of self-awareness that we all work on all the time. Um, you are what uh, Adam Grant, the uh, organizational psychologist at Penn, in his book called Give and Take, where he classifies people into givers, matchers, and takers. Mm. You're a giver. Uh, and uh, givers, because they give, and they give, and they give, and they give, and they give, they can get depleted. Mm -hmm. And frequently, when I see people who are givers, and if they get depleted, they actually lose their positive energy, and they're really of no use to anyone around them or themselves, right? Yep. So they need to get uh, refreshed or rejuvenated and rejuvenated means to make young again. My wife would call it repleted. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, the, as we get further along in our professional careers, right, 90% um, of the challenges facing us are psychological ones, and this one about refreshing and repletion is really a one to focus in on. So many of us have ways that we very proactively, deliberately, intentionally do to get refreshed or repleted. What are the things that you do? I actually just went through this. Um, over the last couple months, I've had obviously some big life changes happening between uh, buying a new house and moving to having a kid to being, it's, this is a unique time to have this podcast because over the last few months I've had a lot of reflection on this and a lot of um, discussions with mentors of mine and, and my partners on what my life does look like for my career and what I'm good at and what I'm not good at and what I should be learning. So this is all coming fresh from thinking a lot about all of this. And one of my partners actually thought I was mad at him because I did, 
I, I was getting depleted and, and I was just exhausted and my, my positive feedback loop had not been as quick as I wanted it. And I think one of the, and I, and I just wasn't as happy as I was. And this was like the first time in my career I've ever got to this, this point where I felt depleted and you said it more eloquently and, and more, uh, you know, with an analysis than I did. But after the last, even just six weeks, this is something that I've been working on yeah. where, um, I don't have like a specific, you know, I like to go and, you know, surf or I like to go and do X, Y, Z activity. It's just a mental thing. And, and I think a lot of people call this meditation and sure. I don't meditate. I don't deliberately sit there for 20 minutes and think and let the positive vibes why you know come over you and all that um it's just a mental uh clarity of where i'm at hey i'm in a, an awesome job i'm so happy i've got a great life and it's just um my own reassurance of of where i'm at and um i think a lot of the reasons you feel that way is because not only do you feel like you're being it, there's take happening and uh, you haven't been re- replenished exactly. It's the uncertainty of if and when it will ever happen. And when you're in it, it's really hard to know. I mean, there's yeah. no self-awareness at that moment. Right. Oh, this is coming from fatigue because I've been up three times with a baby. It's yeah. just, there's no awareness of that. There's no awareness of that. It, and then it it, um, it accentuates the other things in your life to make them feel overpowering. And so... Now I have this tool set where if I even feel a little bit of angst, I just basically, I, I kn- I've now been able to identify that and tell myself, and, and I guess you can call it meditating. I sit there for five minutes and reflect on all the super positive parts of my life and realize that it is not always going to be like this feeling and I need to enjoy every minute, even if it doesn't feel like I've, you know, hit the the 10 billion dollar investment or one of my companies just failed um that will all come and if i'm unhappy between now and then i'm going to not only be unhappy i'm going to miss out on opportunities and uh, i may um it might be a self-fulfilling prophecy where my negativity and my my lack of desire to do more work or whatever it is might actually end up hurting some of those opportunities so it's just i guess self-awareness I guess you can call it meditating, but it's having gone through it once and not wanting to go through it again. Yesterday, I uh, was with David Caro, the CEO of uh, Human Longevity, Inc., and we were chatting, uh, and, and we recorded some of it. I hope that uh, podcast listeners will be able to hear some of that. And he was, we were chatting about this exact subject, and um, he was asking me about what is my uh, workout regimen, and I explained to him I'm sort of a six- or seven-day-a-week workout guy, and my workout does include... Um, you know, metabolic plus breath work, uh, plus sometimes hot cold, plus I'm a 30 year transcendental meditator. And he said, how long does that take you? And I said, well, the whole thing from start to finish, you know, sort of 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. Like he said, two hours. I said, he said, yeah. He said, two hours a day you work on that. I said, yeah. I mean, look, I'm 62 years old. I've had three appointments today on the West Coast. I live on the East Coast and in the Bahamas. I couldn't keep that up on a sustained basis unless I very deliberately refilled that cup all the time, right? Otherwise, I would get depleted. Yeah. So maybe he thinks I'm crazy. I don't know. I've got to ask him about it. No, I, I think that I, I think that to myself. I'm at a point where just with all things going on, I, I don't have as much time to work out as I'd like. Uh, I live a bit farther away than work than I used to, so it's a bit more of a drive. And I used to, I mentioned this earlier, I used to be a water polo player, seriously work out seven, eight, nine times a week yeah. for hours, yeah. hours, hours on end. And there's, there's the physical uh repletion and there's a mental repletion yes and you have to have really uh, you don't need one or the other um you do need both and and i realize that um no matter what time of day it is even if i have to wake up 30 minutes earlier that bit of extra working out does help me because um I'm inspired by what you just said, and I need to continue to make sure I do that, even if it's twice a week. Because um, I think I look back at some of the, the, the last few months when I was really feeling that way. My pregnant wife didn't want to walk with me. I didn't want to leave her. I didn't want to do this. You know, so there was reasons to not work out and not doing it for three or four weeks. And then just one time, even if it's a 30-minute swim or if, a, uh, if it's taking a, a call and walking around the block 10 times, 
um, is so important and you forget to do it because life gets in the way. Um, it's what it's, uh, Tony Robbins called changing your state, right? That's so for exactly me, right. For me, a workout, and then I jump into a very cold pool. Yeah. I mean, I can almost feel those endorphins rushing through my body. Right? Yeah, completely. <laughs> and it's and for anyone listening who feels that they're so out of shape that it's hard to even get into it now, it's not about working out, and I don't like the term working out for that perspective. Yeah. It's just changing your state, and I yeah. think that's a really great way to put it. Yeah. Um, and it's and there's a physiological change that happens when you do that. So look, we're coming to the end of our time together. I've got a couple of closing questions for you. Um, in the past few years, Max, has there been any new uh, either belief or talent or behavior that you think has improved your quality of life for you? Any new belief, any new habit, any new behavior that's increased your quality of life, just top of mind? I would say, hmm. Um, there's been so much change in my life. Yeah. In general, uh, personally and professionally, that it's been actually hard to maintain uh, a routine and a behavior throughout all of that I've ha it's been a lot of adapting on the fly well i would observe something though because i haven't seen you for a few months and i would observe that your journey in the self-reflection that you just talked about is what i would say is probably something that's improved the quality of your life because i see a difference in you even today that i appreciate that and i don't know how to i would have to reflect on this a bit more to give you that analysis but there is something about that um and I guess the ability to self-reflect more, but there, I do feel different, especially over these last couple months, which is, um, I, I want to say thoughtfulness maybe. It's, it's really, um, I, there is actually something, and this is what I think it is. As an optimist, as someone who's very curious, enthusiastic, I like to take in as much information as possible. And... Now I've really realized the next part of my success is the ability to synthesize information. Yes. And so I've been really, really active. And I've actually, here's what it is. I've started reading a lot more. A lot more. Um, I'm talking about trying to do four to six books a week, a uh, month. Yeah. Not week. That would be very hard. But I, I deliberately did not like to read very much. It was just not an energy uh, creating activity for me. But just like, and I was really of mind, basically as of six months ago, that I'm gonna just double, triple down on the things that I'm really good at and not worry so much about the things that I wasn't as good at. So if I were to summarize the things that have changed, one of them is trying to do things that I'm not as good at repeatedly, even though they're hard and even though they're monotonous and sometimes annoying and sometimes really challenging. Number two is really focusing hard on synthesizing my thoughts and really having a clarity of my thoughts and then the third one would be uh, half audiobooks, half actual sitting down, good old-fashioned reading. Yeah, so. the most successful entrepreneurs and investors I know read everything they can get their hands on all the time, never stop. They've always got two or three things going on, whether it's periodicals or books, audiobooks or whatever. They also are seeking advice from everyone they run into. And then they ignore all of that and make up precisely their own mind. Yep. Right? Those are the best ones. Because well, they, they got informed by those outside opinions, but that didn't become them. They weren't trying to be pleasing the crowd. They were forming their own opinion from some of that input they got. I was doing that in my life, but the way that I was doing that was not um, in a systematic way. Right? I was just, it was like drinking from a fire hose of life, trying to get everything I possibly could and ignoring that. Not because that's the entrepreneurial side of me, but because I wasn't synthesizing all of those points effectively to then add to my thought process. Because I love I love your word on that synthesis, because that truly is bringing a lot of value. Synthesizing, and in fact, I'm going to give you a piece of writing that I've been scribbling on on a flight out here okay. that speaks to that. Please. Let me. Here's the last question. Um, is there a one misconception that people who ha meet you have about you that you feel is a misunderstanding? You're asking some really great questions. And I, I have a lot of meetings with a lot of people. And the comment that almost all of them say at the end of it is, I realize we didn't talk about you at all. Because I'm much more interested in talking about other people and about 
other people's thoughts and on things. So I don't have a great reflection on some of these these questions that you asked me. But the is there one misconception, the misconception that people have about you that you feel is a misunderstanding? I mean, my natural inclination would be to ask you what you think that might be, having first met me and getting to know me very well over the last oh, couple of years. Oh, I've got an answer to that, sure. I would love to hear yours because I, I don't have one off the top of my head. My answer would be that because you have such a an attracting personality, uh, this uh, very brilliant combination of head and heart, which is very, very unique, very unusual, that it could be that people sometimes mistake your friendliness for a lack of seriousness of purpose. Yet I know that you have a very serious uh, focus on professional and personal goals and that you have very high standards on those. And so I don't get distracted by that. But I think maybe some people could make a mistake and just sort of think that your friendliness means you don't have as high standards and they're gonna get surprised someday if they think that I, I love that. That is something I couldn't have come up with myself because I haven't asked that question enough. So I love that and that's something to reflect on. And, and I definitely can see that um, because I am extremely serious and as you get to know me, you see that. Um, through that comment, I've thought of another thing, which is that I'm actually an introvert at heart even though I come off as an extrovert yeah. and my job is being an extrovert and I do get energy from being an extrovert but um, the definition of an introvert is not wanting to be around more than just a few people at the same time so I don't love going to networking events I don't love going to events in general or parties or things like that that have a bunch of new I get overwhelmed because I genuinely care about the conversations or the three or four conversations that I'm having not the the repeatable three-minute conversation with 25 people, right. I would rather sit there for four hours with two or three new friends rather than you know, meet 25 new people over that same three and four hours where I leave it just feeling depleted of, of no substance. So um, if, if I had to choose between staying at home on a you know, Friday, Saturday night or going to a party, it's every time I would rather stay home and something that my friends have always, my good friends always know about me. But if you were to meet me the first time, you'd think I'm, you know, someone who's going to a new event four times a week, but that's <laughs> definitely not the case. Yeah. I think that's a really good answer. And actually it applies to me too, but I can see how it applies to you. And I think that's a, a good sense of self-awareness. Hey, look, I really want to thank you for, for being with me this morning and talking in positive enterprise value. I know that entrepreneur owner managers who listen to this are going to get a lot out of it. So thanks so much. I hope so. Thank you guys for listening. I'd never done a podcast and really enjoyed my first one. It really was a conversation with someone that I always like conversing with. So Max, where can people connect with you or learn more about Bold Capital Partners? Go to boldcapitalpartners.com. And if you want to connect with me, generally don't take um, cold emails, but if you just mention Pete, Pete's name, uh, I will respond at maxx at boldcapitalpartners.com. Thanks a lot.